0: Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Okay, um, I'd like to welcome all of you to another uh, podcast for the Women of Color, Advance, in Peace and Security in our VIVE series. My name is Bonnie Jenkins. I am the uh, founder and executive director of WCAPS. And it's really a great honor for me to have these podcasts with these amazing women um, who've done so much and accomplished so much and, to, and and who are really inspiration to both young and old uh, for what they've done. So it's my honor to welcome Elmira Besrali, who's going to talk a little bit about what she's done um, uh, in the area of foreign policy, peace security. Um, and it's really my honor to, to, to speak with her and introduce her to you, for those of you who may not know her. So I'd like to start with Elmira, just, uh, just uh, introduce yourself and say a little bit about who you are and uh, a little bit of your background.
1: Bonnie, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be talking to you um, and to your audience here. I think it's so important to have so many different voices talking about foreign policy, um, particularly women. Um, And a little bit about me. I am the co-founder and CEO of an organization called Foreign Policy Interrupted, which is very much focused on increasing female voices, contributing to foreign policy discussions in the media on a government level, um, in academic circles, uh, just to make sure that we are getting a multi dimensional perspective on the multitude of foreign policy issues that we have. Um, I came to do that from having. Um, two decades of experience working for the State Department, working for a multilateral organization in Bosnia-Herzegovina right after that war ended in the 1990s, Um, and then working with entrepreneurs all over the world. In 2015, I published a book called From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs Unlikely Places, which looked at the rise of high-growth, high-impact entrepreneurs worldwide.
0: Great. And just that introduction, there's a number of things I'd love to, to ask you a little about in more detail. Um, can you say a little bit about what you did when you were at State Department?
1: Sure. I had just graduated. I had gotten a graduate degree from Columbia University, and I started answering phone calls for Madeleine Albright, who was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and i have to say it goes to show you that hard work actually does pay off because she took me under her wing and made me a member of her staff and i joined her in washington dc and was part of the team working for the first female secretary of state that i mean that that's so exciting
0: um yeah i have a similar story where i was i was brought uh, back into government because i had left for a while i was in government in the 90s and i caught, and I, I really returned um not only because um President Obama was, was coming in and, and being sworn in, but also because uh, I, uh, Secretary Clinton reached out to me. And so it was great uh, working for her. And I had hoped that we would have our first female president, but that didn't happen.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. Very disappointing. Hopefully in the future.
0: Yes. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit more about
1: what you did uh, in Bosnia when you were there. Well, you know, I went off to, um, so the story of how I actually came to Bosnia is after I left the State Department in 2000, I came back to New York, which is where I'm from and my family lives, um, and which is where I currently live now, and I worked in the private sector for about 18 months, but I have to tell you that after having a career working on on the front line of foreign policy issues, you really, I, I had FOMO big time, and it was one of those things where working on private sector, even though I was making you know, five times the salary I was at the State Department, it just wasn't something that I got excited about getting out of bed in the morning to do. Um, and I was looking around, and I had gone on an election observer mission to Kosovo in 2000 and knew about the OSCE from there, and I started digging around on the OSCE's website, and there were a couple of job openings at their mission in Sarajevo, and that's how I ended up in Sarajevo, first as the executive assistant to the head of mission, who was an American ambassador, Bob Beecroft. Um, and then the position of chief spokesperson opened up, and I applied for it. And for three years, I dealt with three different media organizations, Serb, Croat, and Bosniak, um, and it was a tremendously interesting experience.
0: Wow, that's, uh, that sounds very interesting. Um, I love how you said that you were making about five times as much. <laughs> in government, yeah, government I like, like that sounds really tempting. So, um, so then you, uh, say a little bit about your book, um, and and uh, and the book that you wrote. It sounds very interesting.
1: Yeah. So, um, one of the reasons I got into foreign policy is as the daughter of immigrants from Turkey, um, I was always made aware of the world um, outside of Brooklyn, New York, and. You know, obviously, you know, I, had a, I have a different name and I have a different culture and we spoke a different language at home, but we'd also go on summer vacations to Turkey to visit my mother's family who still who still lives in Turkey. Um, and it was always, it, it was always kind of this experience where I was going into a different world and seeing, you know, this is a place that my parents truly love and it really was very hard for them to leave and I could see how it pained especially my mother to come back to the United States and I always thought you know well why why did they leave if it's so painful for them and you know The realization that I came to is that there were no economic opportunities for my parents. My parents are not college educated. Um, And, you know, in in Turkey at that time, there were just no job opportunities. And so one of the reasons I got into foreign policy was how do you actually make places like Turkey work? How do you actually create jobs in these places? How do you make them function so that families don't have to leave for better opportunities? And so when I landed at this organization working with entrepreneurs around the world, what I found is what you really needed to do is focus in on those individuals building businesses, but who weren't able to scale them up. And I, I was finding so many different entrepreneurs around the world who were doing exactly that, who were building high-scale ventures that were creating lots of jobs and bringing in investments in their communities, but we weren't talking about them. And what I wanted to do was not necessarily write a how-to business book on how to set up a business, but talk about the importance of how business contributes to global development and social mobility. And what I did was I found uh, entrepreneurs in seven different countries, and I looked at how they were doing it. And essentially how they were doing it is they were overcoming obstacles that were really preventing them from replicating the Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg stories. And showing that it was possible to build a high-impact, high-scalable, investment-worthy venture, whether you were in Mexico, Turkey, Nigeria, India, Russia, or China. And I even went to Pakistan. I have a chapter in, in Pakistan about my book. And it really tells the story about how economics, startups, and foreign policy are all interconnected.
0: I like that. I like uh, looking at how all of those are connected because I think that's a that's a great story to tell. Not only, I like that you looked at the issue of how do you scale up because that is important. It's not just how you start, but how you build. And so much of what success is, is how you actually build up what you start start. But making those connections with foreign policy, I think, is is very
1: important. Absolutely. And I think that there is a connection. I think that there's this fallacy that, you know, everybody stays in their lanes and then foreign policy people just look at policy. I mean, I think we're seeing in today's world that all of those things are contingent upon one another and they bleed into one another. And I think it's even more important for us to actually make those connections in order to solve the global challenges that we have.
0: I totally agree with you on that one. I mean, we could talk forever on that idea because <laughs> I really think that's, that's, and that's something that the next generation really needs to really embrace since they're the ones that's going to be dealing with so many of these very uh, serious global issues, environmental issues. And we have to start thinking about better ways to address them. And that really does mean not, you know, getting out of the box and work with others uh, to try to figure out the different ways to try to resolve some of these things. So I totally agree with that. So you're from New York. I mean, you're from New York. I'm I'm from the Bronx, so it's nice to hear you're you're from Brooklyn. All
1: right, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. And you're still there and in Brooklyn, or in New York City, or where are you now? Yeah, I'm still a Brooklyn girl. Oh, great. Okay, well, I'll have to see you because I go there very often.
1: Oh, I'd love that. Absolutely. So,
0: um, so you told us a little bit about how you're interested in foreign policy, which is which is great. Um, are you happy with the field you've chosen? Are you happy that you that you focus your most of your attention and most of your time in, in your career on foreign policy issues?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you know, even when I left uh, government in two thousand and I was making all of this money, um, you know, the allure of actually working on issues that affect people's lives, trying to solve global challenges, you know, I that's something that I'm really interested in. Um, you know, making them lots of money is certainly, <laughs> it's certainly nice. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you really do need, you, you need something that's going to excite you. That's going to, you know, get you out of bed in the morning and, and, you know, make, make what you're doing meaningful. And for me, that's always been about connecting with people from all over the world, from addressing these issues. And I, and I think particularly, It's not just about making the policy in Washington. I think for me, it's even more important to be out in the field Mm -hmm. because you really do get to see challenges and the impact of what those problems and what the solutions are firsthand. You know, when I was in Bosnia, I was always amazed at how a lot of these decisions were coming out of Washington and London and Paris. And they didn't really understand the realities on the ground. And mm-hmm. when we would tell them that, you know, well, that's not really going to work, there was a lot of pushback. But I also think that Being in the field, but also connecting with people is so vitally important. And this is also going back to the work that I'm doing today with foreign policy interrupted. You know, today's global challenges are so vast and so numerous that we can't just rely on single policies to address them. What we really need to do is get people engaged and get people working on them. And that's not gonna happen in the Oak Panel rooms at the State Department, that's actually gonna happen in, you know, when you're on the ground in Nigeria, when you're in Pakistan, when you're in Sri Lanka, when you're in China. And we have to actually start to realize that the people in these countries really do matter. And they actually contribute not only to global prosperity, but to global security and peace.
0: Right. And and, and that is such an important point. And, um, you know, Getting folks out, getting folks in DC and I guess in other capitals to understand it is is always is always a challenge, but I think we have you know with the next generation and going out and and helping others to understand that I think is going to be very very vital all for the future. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the foreign policy interrupted and what you're doing there now?
1: Sure. So um, it started in two thousand and fourteen, um, it was just a an idea where we thought well why do we continue to have these discussions about where are the women you know continually seeing lists of experts in middle east israel china national security and they're all male dominated um and one of the issues uh, that we found is that the media really you know isn't aware of the talent that is out there and so one of the the impetuses of setting up Foreign Policy Interrupted was to be a resource for media outlets, newspapers, journalists, um, bookers, producers, editors, and really helping them identify the people, the women who are working on these issues, but also to be a resource for women who, I mean, frankly, you know, this is where um, I disagree with a lot of, you know, the common... um, common belief that women aren't confident and women have to raise their hands or they have to quote unquote lean in. It's not enough. And I, and this is where I do agree with Michelle Obama. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to lean in. You know, we don't have the incentives that allow us to raise our hand because when we raise our hand, we get punished. I and mean, mm-hmm. the reality is that when women actually do raise their hands and volunteer and lean in, they're either ignored, they're humiliated, they're harassed, they're threatened. I mean, the incentives aren't there. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was how do you actually get women to change their mindset and actually really realize that not only is, is it not them, that it's the institutions and this, you know, the way that we've actually all been brought up to believe that, you know, white men are the authority, you know, mm-hmm. and, to, and and that it's not up to us to actually change it. It's, we all have to, as a collective of society, break down th- these frameworks, just like Me Too is doing, right? In the same way that Me Too is actually shed a spotlight on power and sexual harassment and the role, in, you know, the role of men and women in the workplace, we actually have to also understand that if women aren't raising their hands, it's not because they lack confidence, it's because there's something wrong with the system. hmm And then also to provide women with the tools so that when they are actually called on to be able to go on MSNBC or Fox or CNN and to be able to not only interject with their substantive points, but to also then fight back anybody who is interrupting them or who is mansplaining to them. And so what we do is we provide um, op-ed training workshops. How do you pitch editors? And we do media trainings and, um, I'm actually getting ready to to break that out and to actually expand it further beyond foreign policy with an organization that I'm calling Interrupter. And and what is that organization?
0: It's called Interrupter. So it'll be it'll just be an expanded
1: version of of FPI.
0: Okay. Um, and so, do you have a, do you also include like a list of um, people? uh, who, who, uh, media can go to for, um, you know, some background information on these issues. You know, you have women who are ready to go out there and talk and speak. Do you keep a list of that? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah. So on the website, the FP interrupted website, we have experts lists, um, and right. I try to keep them up, um, updated regularly, um, by topic area. So if you take a look, um, we, we have a list, um, on national security defense um, we've got a list most recently since Yemen it's been in the news a lot we've got a list of experts in Yemen China Iran um, you know and on a whole array of both geographic areas but then also topical areas that are resources I think not just for the media and for journalists to use but also for organizations who are putting together a panel an event or conference and are looking for different voices to come and And actually discuss these issues. I think, you know, I think especially what's been disappointing in this age of of Twitter 24-7 news coverage and Facebook and, and us being digitally connected is that we're actually not seeing organizations tap into these resources and actually engage in different conversations. You know, I'm tired of listening to the same people have the same conversations, these same predictable conversations. You know, let's hear from people we haven't heard from. Let's expand, enrich the discussion, because the reality is when you get more perspectives, you're actually going to get to better solutions.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I'm so tired of hearing the same, like you said, hearing the same people. Um, and, you know a lot of these media outlets like CNN and others have people who they I guess are contracted who they always go to on a regular basis on issues the problem with that is it's always the same people um and giving, right and it's know, just right and it's giving, not interesting you know, no it's not and it's like you already after a while you already kind of get a sense of what they're going to say right um and I, I don't and I understand why it's it's good for them to have these people who they they know they can talk to and be reliable to talk to on a regular basis because they've had them before. But on the other hand, it does make it boring. It does make it, you know, okay, they say the person's name and say, all right, I kind of got a sense of what this person's going to say already. So you don't really want to listen. Um, but I'm glad to hear about the um, the list. I know that my organization also has a list. It's more, it's not really related to media coverage or, or for people to do media, though that's, of course, something they could do. Um, it's also for, you know, bringing uh, women of color out there so people can see who's out there and just to get rid of the concept of that there aren't a lot of women of color out there who can speak on certain issues. Um, and also with the, uh, and hoping to help them with the media as well. So glad to hear that. Um, that that's something that, that you have there.
1: Yeah. And as, can- a, as a woman of color, I have to say, I really am very conscientious about making sure that those lists are not just Mm-hmm. Um, are, are not just one-dimensional. Um, you know, I think it is so important to actually have ethnic and racial diversity in these conversations. So it's not just about having women at the table, but it's also about having different people from different backgrounds at the table. Um, It's profoundly important. And I have to tell you, you know, as, as a woman of color growing up here in the United States, you know, being in, in particularly, I think the challenge for people of color in foreign policy is that you do get pigeonholed into certain areas. So because my parents are from Turkey, I always get pigeonholed into things that relate to Turkey, which I'm happy to because I care about the country. Obviously, I know about it. But I don't think that I should be pigeonholed. Like, I have expertise beyond that. And I want to actually be able to engage in discussions that relate to economics and global trade because I also know a lot about those things, too. And so... You know, I think in the same way that we don't actually think twice about a man engaging, a white man engaging in a discussion, whether it's about Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, or China, we should also not, you know, limit people of color to whatever racial identity that they have. Exactly. And so let's shift a little bit here. I'd like to spend the rest of the
0: conversation on some of these other issues um, uh, about being a woman and a woman of color in, in, in this area. So uh, you already started, the, started to say a few few words about this just now. Um, and so um, tell, us, tell us in the audience a little bit more about some of the challenges that you think you faced uh, continuing on what you've been saying uh, as a woman of color in this field of foreign policy, uh, particularly in some areas that's so... Um, predominantly uh, white male. Uh, some, of the, some of the challenges you've experienced, and, and also maybe the second part would be how have you um, overcome some of those challenges?
1: Um, I think the challenges that I, I've personally faced is just um, I think that there's a, lo- there's a lot of unconscious bias there, first of all. I don't think anyone's ever gonna say, you know, Elmira, you're not welcome in this discussion, or we don't, you know, we don't wanna hear from you. Um, sure, I get invited to the panels, I get invited to speak at certain things, but I can definitely tell that there's a certain lack of trust at the things that I'm saying. You know, there's a lot of questions. You know, people will question um, my analysis over a white man, say, particularly on topics that, you know, like on a topic like Turkey, you know, I'll, I'll be on a panel with two white men who don't speak Turkish, and yet I'll be the one who who is doubted, and I, you know, I speak Turkish and speak to Turkey people in Turkey all the time. Um, so I think that there's a lot of unconscious bias that that I think women of color, I know, I certainly, I I have faced in terms of, you know, well, is she really capable? Does she really know what she's talking about? And I think the way that I've overcome that is really, uh, you know, not allowing their doubts to become mine. Um, really knowing that I, you know, am I perfect? No. Do I know everything? No. I know a lot, and I think that that is something that I should be sharing because it is important to engage and participate and add value to the larger discussion. So what I really try to do is, you know, just say, you know, just say, you know, their doubts shouldn't be mine. So I was listening to, um, I was listening to uh, how I built this with Guy Raz, And uh, he was interviewing uh, the woman who, who, uh, uh, an entrepreneur who had started um, uh, human resources. Act one: Janice Bryant Howard, um, a human resources, and she said, "You know, she's an African American woman who started this business that's predominantly white male." And you know, Guy Raz asked her this question: "You know, how did you know how did you deal with people questioning you all the time?" And she said, "Well, it was one of these things where." they could say that I, you know, I was a black woman, or I could, I was this, but it was what I answered to that made me who I am. And if I didn't answer to it, then, then I wouldn't, I wasn't allowing them to win.
0: Right. Wow. And so, and, and so it, what would you say, I mean, having, having started in, in in the field, and, you know, going back to your time with, with uh, Secretary Albright to now, uh, would you say that been some, of course, the challenges still exist. But where have you seen some improvement in terms of women in the field, in terms of women of color in the field, or has there been improvement?
1: Um, I certainly think I, you know, I don't think that, I, I, you know, I certainly think that there has been tremendous um, improvement since Madeleine Albright became the first female Secretary of State. I mean, certainly, you're starting to see. Not only more women put themselves forward, but more women getting called upon um, and i I think that 's true across the board in foreign policy. I certainly see it at the State Department and the Defense Department and the NSC. so I think you know in terms of more women in senior leadership positions, that is certainly enabled. but I still think that we have a long way to go, and I think one of the one of the traps that we can fall into and have fallen into is that because we've had three female secretaries of state, and we've had so many women in, in a very high power positions. I mean, and, you know, if you take a look at the Obama administration, there were lots of women at senior levels in foreign policy. Samantha Power, Susan Rice, um, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, obviously. Um, but then also just in his inner circle team at the NSC, and I think that there's this fallacy of like, oh well, we've we've had so you know we've had these women, that there's also not an effort to actually promote more women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's we've got, we got our few now, so right, got right, yeah. right. So we've got, like, we filled the quota, so like we've like our job is done here, and it's just like no, this isn't about a quota. This is actually about getting to a better place. And getting to that better place is going to be continually engaging in bringing in that diverse voices. So it's not just about having like, okay, how many, like, did we get three women? No, it's about actually bringing more in and actually having your foreign policy representative of the country that you are leading. Exactly. Um, And um, so
0: where do you, I mean, where do you think, uh, what would what would you like to see changed um you know i um and and you could take that question and 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 answer it the way you see best what do you think the levers are in terms of how do we how do we keep the momentum going for having women in powerful positions let's say in government um i mean i think some would say that that maybe right now we're taking a hit um for women and people of color, let's say in a government, where you're you're seeing more exodus and not as much people few people, people coming in, um, but in foreign policy decision making, and that could be in the government and in outside government where they are the levers of foreign policy um, discussions. You know, where how do we make how do we make that change? How do what do we do now um, uh, to keep it going in terms of having women uh, in in senior positions?
1: Um, I think that's a great question. Um, There's a couple of different, I have a couple of different um, answers to that. So one is, I think we as women of color really need to make sure that we're getting our voices out there. So if you do have an op-ed idea, if you have an idea for a blog post, write it. It matters. And don't make it about yourself. Actually realize that your voice is actually contributing to helping all of us move forward. And so, you know, Bonnie, if you're out there speaking on a panel, um, if you're out there publishing an op-ed, it actually helps all of us collectively um, because it actually does start to really chip away at those, you know, those biases that people have and, and we're seen in a different light. So definitely raise your hand, go out there. Um, if you're, you know, curious about, like, how do I pitch an editor or what's an op-ed, you know, definitely contact me. Um, I can I can walk through the steps with you. But I think it's very important for us to, um, you know, go out there and have our voices heard. Um, I think the second thing is also we also have to realize, and this is where um, I have a lot of qualms with the Me Too movement. Um, you know, I think that there's this sense that, you know, we 've been out there, and me too you know has really shattered this um, this huge elephant in the room about sexual harassment and men in power and how you know male female dynamics but i don 't think that we 've actually addressed this issue of how women are seen and it's, and, and what we 're actually going we 're actually going to do about it, and so I think what 's happened is there 's certain a certain complacency among certain women that you know, this is a movement, and we've actually been moving forward. And my question to them is, have we? Um, I I actually question that because I think that for certain women, things might have gotten better. But I also think that it's enabled a certain segment of society to develop a certain righteousness that is excluding women of color and really forgetting that we have additional challenges that that you don't face. You know, you don't face this institutional unconscious bias and discrimination in the same way that we do. And so I think that there's this sense both sense of like we've we've made progress and we're having this momentum but what we're not talking about is a lot of this righteousness is also entrenching and creating greater inequalities within Within not only foreign policy but you know in business and law and academia, and I think that's very dangerous I, I totally agree, and I could do a whole a whole podcast just on that and point. you should because <laughs> we really I really this is something that we need to talk about
0: yes, we do, and I, that's something I definitely want to want to talk about and I've been t- having chats with several people about how to how to frame such a discussion, so I well, I want to be know, in it <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, I'll touch base with you offline and and we can we can continue that conversation. Um, I don't want to keep you much further because you've been very kind uh, uh, with your time. I guess just a couple more questions. Um, um, if you, if, you know, as you see, um, young women of color who want to get into the field of foreign policy. So much of one of the reasons why I wanted to start my organization is for the young women and who may not see, um, you know, the role models out there. And we're in Washington, and we're familiar with other women of color who may be out there doing things and who may be running organizations like you, or, you know, and and maybe not as much in this administration, but in past administrations have seen women of color uh, in positions, um, and there's still not enough of us, as as you know, but if you're the young girl in a city in the Midwest, or in the South, or someplace that's not in a major metropolitan uh, area, And, you know, you feel like I'm the only young uh, girl who's interested in this and I don't have role models. I mean, and and that person comes to you and and they feel very challenged because they don't see the role models and they happen to see you. And they want to know, what do I do and how do I? And you can tell that this person, this young woman just needs to know that she can do it and that, you know, she may seem like the only one out there like herself, but that there are other people who have made it and that she can do it. What do you tell that? What do you tell that young young girl?
1: Well, I tell that young girl that she's doing the right thing of reaching out and and trying to find um, people that she can turn to, um, not only for guidance but for for just that that connection to have. Um, look, you know, I don't think any of us have gotten to the places where we've gotten without connecting with other people, and I think it's profoundly important for. Um, whoever it is to be out there and trying to make those connections you know I get emails all the time from young students um, people who want to chat and I always take the time to do that um, especially if they're people of color because I know that they like you said they don't have the role models and they don't have those networks and so I think a message that I have for the women like ourselves is say yes, you know, Shonda Rhimes, like, you know, it's your year of saying yes. Always say yes to having a conversation with a young person of color, a young woman of color, Um, you know, let that person know that you are available for them, that if they email you, you're going to email them back, that you can take them for coffee. Um, It matters and it does help them in their confidence, in their ability to continue to pursue the things that they're really interested in. And for those young women out there, um, you know, keep reading, keep being curious and keep finding those role models. I mean, I have to say that, um, again, like I got to where I am because people took the time to talk to me. Um, but I also, you know, I went out there and I, you know, I asked the questions and it was hard. You know, it's always just like, oh, is this person going to think I'm stupid? You know, is, you know, am I, is what I'm asking you know, is that, you know, is that strange? Um, Don't, no question is stupid. No question is strange. Just go out there. And I think it's really important to actually go out there and make those connections.
0: Great. Thank you for that. And I think that's excellent advice. And one last question is, um, you know, as I I say a little bit about my organization, I mentioned that, you know, trying to, you know, uh, encourage and, and empower young women and, and to get more, uh, mid-career women who are in, in this field of color, who are of color in this field, uh, you know, get them out uh, into the sunlight um, and not be hidden figures and um, to work in institutions that are not as diverse um, and not have women of color, let's say, on their panels and in their leadership roles. Um, What would you, I mean, how do you see WCAPS, uh, what's the, would you say the most important thing that this organization could do uh, in this area?
1: You know, I think it is. It's um, being able to reach out to different women and showcase that there are a lot of us out there working in this field. Um, I'd love to be able to team up with you and maybe do an event. Um, you know, and not an event, and not in traditional areas. Like you know, let you know, let's go find a high school. You know, in you know, in a predominantly you know mixed or ethnic neighborhood, and and. You know, and and maybe it's never been done because people think, oh, well, those people aren't interested in foreign policy. But I can tell you, if I, you know, if I invited people uh, to a discussion about certain issues in Brooklyn, I think the room would be packed. So I think it's taking what we know and knowing um, that people underestimate us all the time, you know, just going out there and doing doing the thing that people don't expect you to do.
0: Right. Uh, And that sounds great. I would love to do that, Um, particularly in Brooklyn or New York where I I used to live in Brooklyn. So (laughs) give me. Yeah,
1: let's do it.
0: That'd be great. Okay. So I want to thank you so much for doing this and taking the time to do this. Um, I know you're busy, uh, particularly this time of the year with the holidays and everybody trying to get things done so they can look forward to enjoying some time off. So thanks again for doing this. And um, I certainly want to talk offline about doing some things together Um, and so I'd like for folks who are listening to stay tuned for so many things that we will do together.
1: That sounds great Bonnie and thank you for the work that you do and it's really I'm so happy that we had this discussion and I'd love to tell your read uh, to your listeners um, more to come. I definitely want to be more involved with what you're doing and so I hope that they'll hear more from me. Great. Okay, thank you so much. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for
0: joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's WCAPS.org.